Welcome into the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is Wednesday, September the 4th. So glad to have you. Thanks for tuning in. The women played again last night and uh, won again. This group of talent, we've talked about it all summer with the uh, World Cup in France, is is the best collection of talent, individual talent in the world. And uh, the, the main area where they are um, not as far along as they could be, and I think they should be, is on the tactical level. Not because... The players themselves are incapable of a higher level of tactical play. I, I just don't think that the players um, have been coached in that way. In other words, there's been a reliance on the fact that we have superior talent. Therefore, we, we don't put as much importance into other areas of the game that would actually make their lives easier, sustain their careers even longer at peak levels because they do have such supreme individual athletic and footballing uh, ability, they could exploit it even more with a better tactical system. And that's the point um, that we talked about all summer. There's no competing against where they are right now um, without a, a higher level of tactical sophistication. Um, the Netherlands did a pretty good job of stifling them for, for a while. And, uh, and then obviously that ended up getting away from them. And, and that's the, the thing that the margins are razor thin for an opponent of the U S uh, make a mistake. They typically make you pay. And the one thing that this team is, is better at than pretty much any team in the world right now in any sport is they, they talk a lot but they back it up and they pounce on your weaknesses. They are just the best front running team I think I've ever seen. And um, it's impressive where you can get them is you, you you have to, you have to go at them. You have to, you have to pounce on their mistakes because they do make mistakes and so far, there's not been an opponent that's been able to do that well enough, consistently enough to punish them. Um, and and so, you know, whether that's France, Spain, England, or, or Germany, or, or the Netherlands, whoever, that's where you're going to have to get them. And um, right now, it's, it's a tough task. It's a real, real tough task. And... Um, you know anyone who is who is trying to um, you know pull that off is is you know climbing an uphill battle. Um, there's there's no doubt uh, in my mind that uh, where we've got to go as a as a country as a as a program with the women's national team is to address our our weaknesses and that weaknesses. That weakness is in the area of of tactics, and uh, I think we could play cleaner. I think we could play um, even faster in attack with 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 better uh, tactical uh, preparation, etc. And I actually think it would make it easier on our players as well. So, um, you know, that's I guess you could say is nitpicking, right? Because um, they keep winning and they keep destroying opponents, but uh, but I, I I'm always looking at how can we do what we do and do it better? How can we raise it up another notch, uh, take it to another level? And um, you know, so yes, we are winning right now. Yes, we are winning the way we are winning right now. But I think there's an I think there's a much higher level uh, of tactical sophistication that we can employ on on our, with our women's national team that uh, would set them up for more success, even more dominance. And, uh, and I would definitely enjoy that. Um, looking around in, in some other things going on, uh, this past weekend, we didn't get to this yesterday, this past weekend, 
some really, really, um, really bad things going on in Syria um, with with some racial chanting um, at Lukaku. That's just unacceptable. Um, unacceptable cannot happen uh, in 2019. So, um, you know that. Uh, that kind of stuff, that kind of behavior should not be tolerated in the stadiums. It should not be tolerated by the clubs, by the league. Um, and I think, I think Italy has got to get that under wraps. I understand, you know, that, uh, that other players have been dealing with the same kind of things in recent, recent seasons. And, um, I think, uh, we should take, every opportunity to clean that up and to, to get rid of it. Um, that is, uh, that is definitely, um, just a, a really bad sign on the league. Those, those, those fans, etc. Um, no player deserves, uh, that at all. Um, so, I mean, look, the, where we are in this in, in the global game is uh, is an area where where we should be expecting more from our our clubs our leagues we should be expecting more from ourselves quite frankly uh, we should be self policing in those areas and getting rid of those kinds of statements which makes major league soccer's stance on these anti-fascism uh banners and tifos and etc quite a head scratcher um that the the league is is being adversarial towards that um i i would totally get it if it was a you know a nazi swastika and they were like hey that's not going in the stadium but the fact that that you have supporters um unable to to speak up against racism speak up against fascism uh, in the league is uh, ridiculous um we should be using every opportunity that we have to speak against those things, to to call out those things, and to say to the public and to those who who espouse those beliefs, look, this is unacceptable. We should hold ourselves to higher standards. This is not right, etc. Um, and 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 Major League Soccer should be at the front of the line, uh, supporting that, endorsing that, not having an er- adversarial um, you know approach. Uh, to that so um you know i think when we look at you know football around the world soccer as we call it here in the u.s uh it we have to remember that for for a lot of cultures and a lot of supporters and fans of the game around the world it is through football that they're able to express themselves not just the players not just the coaches but the fans themselves they, they speak up against injustice. They speak up against uh, inequity, inequality. They use those moments to, to enter the public theater, to, to have a voice. And here in the U.S., we, we should be the country that's a bastion of free speech. It is, it is written into our, our laws, free speech, we should be supportive of that even in in a football or a soccer environment. Um, I you know I, I I think that the league, Major League Soccer, should really revisit their stance and their posture on these kinds of issues and really begin to to take a look at how they do what they do in those areas. Um, but ultimately, what it comes down to, and, and we talk about this quite frequently on the show is, is a, you know, what is your worldview? What is your worldview? And, and when I mean, what I mean by that is at a very basic level, are you for exclusion? Are you for inclusion? Start there. Are you for open competition or are you for control and power? 
And when you go through, you start asking yourselves very basic principle-based questions about your worldview. That's what shapes your decisions. You know, a lot of people, we get caught up in a, a micro level of a decision. Like, should we paint that wall black or white? Should we do this or do that? But oftentimes, we, we get worked up into a frenzy over that decision rather than taking a step back and going, okay, what is your worldview? Here's my worldview. How do you believe? Here's how I believe. This is what I believe, and this is why I believe it. So it, when, you, when you take that approach to the game, when you say, my worldview is inclusion, then on the matter of fascism and, and racism, how does that factor into our decisions? Are we inclusive and, and welcoming of that type of messaging? Do we allow that? For me, my inclusivity, my tendency and principle of inclusion in the game of football would say that no, in this case, I would stand up against it. And the reason why is because I believe that that is an unjust position. Fascism and racism means less inclusivity. That, 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 that statement is a statement of exclusion, whether it's minorities, whether it, it, it's, it's racial, whether it, it, it is a, a political belief or a religious belief in that way, we should, we should not be standing on the side of exclusion. And I look at those, those stances as exclusionary. Therefore, in my case, as someone who looks as, at inclusivity as being a principle or, or a worldview that shapes my decisions in the game of football, then I would be taking that approach. Well, Major League Soccer is built on the principle of exclusion. It's not difficult to connect the dots as to why those kind of stances of speaking up against certain things are difficult for MLS to stand up against. Now, I'm not at all saying that they're in favor of racism or fascism. What I'm saying is, is that their worldview of exclusion and their worldview of control and power versus freedom and independence and access and opportunity means that their worldview shapes their decision-making in such a way that they, that they value control and power and exclusion over freedom of speech, over fans and supporters having a voice and maybe a voice in a way that they feel threatened by. Major League Soccer may be, may, may be more worried about the supporters getting out of hand, and I say that with, with air quotes, out of hand in the stands, chanting against injustice or chanting against this, that they feel like they couldn't keep a lid on that, that they couldn't control it, that the passion level would actually get too high for them, for their comfort level. And so that's where the worldview of, uh, of, of, a, of a major league soccer plays into this this is where you have to come to, to to understanding where decisions really get made what are they shaped by are they shaped by the fact that they are in favor of fascism or racism no i don't believe that for a second but what i do believe is that their worldview of exclusion their worldview of power and control trumps other things trumps their ability or their willingness to step up or speak up on certain issues just because it might mean that what they actually value more, which is power control, exclusionary access, would be threatened. 
an uprising of the people by the people for the people is the very thing that Major League Soccer doesn't want to happen. Because anti-fascist chants, speaking up on the part of injustice, speaking up on the part of, of doing the right things and standing up for people, giving people a voice, could very, very quickly lead us down the path of chants in Major League Soccer stadiums of open access for everyone, promotion relegation for everyone. Everyone should have a chance. Everyone should have a voice. Let's stand up for what is right. When the passion level gets so high and the fans feel empowered, emboldened, and and the fans are coming from a worldview of inclusion, they're coming from a worldview of justice, of opportunity, of access, of equality, when they're coming from that worldview, it's very easy to end up in the lane of standing in a stadium going, every club in America should have what we have. They should have the access to this, the right to earn their way here. And that is something that Major League Soccer does not want to happen. They do not want to face that. They do not want to battle that. They already they are already like getting crushed in the PR battle over the U.S. Women's National Team and their treatment of the program. Uh, Major League Soccer, Soccer United Marketing, U.S. Soccer, the, the the cabal that runs American soccer is already getting hammered over their treatment of the U.S. Women's National Team, not just in the press but but by Congress and by the government. They don't want to go down this road where they're getting hit in this way as well. So when you back up and you look at these issues like what's happened in Serie A with Lukaku and then you see the way MLS's posture and stance has been with their fans, where they should be, you know, if you're, if you're just looking at this, you know, with a, uh, a, a lens of equality and justice and fairness and, and saying, hey, what should a league be, should be doing? They should be standing up in favor of what these fans are supporting, in favor of what these fans are, are uh, in, in Major League Soccer are, are speaking up against, which is what should be taking place in, in Serie A stadiums. Instead, we're not getting that. And when we're not getting that, you have to start asking why. And, and that's where you find these worldviews, these exclusionary worldviews. Artificial scarcity is not the problem. It's the belief of exclusion, power, and control that is the problem. That's what leads them to create scenarios with U.S. soccer that create artificial scarcity it is the belief the worldview of of u.s soccer we can play this out for a second it is the belief of u.s soccer that that major league soccer has to be a success no matter what it is that worldview that makes u.s soccer shapes u.s soccer to make the decisions that they make regarding everyone else. When is the last time you've heard U.S. soccer go, what if Major League Soccer isn't good for American soccer in the way that they're currently constructed and currently operating? When is the last time you've heard a U.S. soccer representative speak up against publicly against major league soccer in things that they're doing like limiting player movement over the years keeping the the payments to players really low so they can control the market and keep a lid on the market when is the federation spoken up on behalf of its players against major league soccer and their practices in those areas you don't and you won't because at the federation level, what they have is their worldview is that major league soccer must succeed. 
That's the most important thing. So that means they accept. They may not like everything, but they're not going to push back, especially publicly, against Major League Soccer because their worldview is MLS has to succeed. We want it to succeed. That means that USL, you can do what you want to do up until a point. NPSL, NISA, UPSL, you can do what you want to do and build what you want to build up until a point. No further. U.S. Youth Soccer, U.S. Club Soccer, U.S.A. You guys can build programming. You can do what you want up unto a point. And until we get to that level, you know, you're free. You can do some things. But you go beyond that and you, you get to a place where we feel like you're going to be a threat to Major League Soccer. We have to pull back the reins. And this is, this is not just about professional soccer at the top level. This is not just about the MLS franchises you see play on TV or maybe you've been to a match to recently. We're talking about MLS in general. Like the decisions that U.S. soccer just came out with regarding the Development Academy. That Development Academy is organized and run by the Federation. Major League Soccer... In several markets, their academies were struggling. So what did U.S. soccer do? They pulled everyone back. They pulled the reins back on everyone else, and they said, Major League Soccer is going to get a tier unto themselves. They are going to play themselves. They're not going to play anyone else. They're going to be in their own division. Everyone else is going to get demoted. Regardless of what you've done on the field, regardless of the players you've developed, you get demoted. You're not Major League Soccer. You're in Tier 2. Worldview. This is what happens. Their worldview at U.S. Soccer holds Major League Soccer in, in a way that they have to be successful no matter what. That is their worldview, and therefore it shapes every decision they make, every choice that they make, every policy decision, every, every election that they, that they look at, every uh, personnel hire, every position. Major League Soccer must be a success no matter what. Anything that threatens that worldview is a threat in their eyes. Never mind the fact that that there are owners and there are teams that would love to compete at Division One level and, and would want to invest more than Major League Soccer has been willing to invest. U.S. Soccer doesn't care. MLS must succeed no matter what. That is their worldview. And when you start to look at things from that lens of a worldview, what is your worldview on this issue? Meaning, what is the principle that guides your decision-making? Not just what are the decisions you've made, but what, what, are, what are the principles that guide those decisions? And if you do this in life, it could be in politics. It could be in how you parent your kids. It could be in, in, in the teams you support. It could be in how you set up your schedule every day. What matters most to you is what is going to guide your decisions. That's your worldview. It's kind of the, the, the very top level of thinking on an issue. If you are about freedom and equality and opportunity, it's going to shape the way that you make decisions on a granular level. And so when we look at Major League Soccer, what we see are not a bunch of racists. I don't see a bunch of fascists, but what I do see is an organization that is so obsessed with power, control, and exclusion that they, they hold those beliefs, no matter what, to the, to the detriment of everyone else and everything else. And that guides their decisions at such a core level that it affects U.S. soccer at large because U.S. soccer has that worldview that MLS must succeed no matter what. And that's a dangerous place for a federation to be.
Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. There you can uh, find all kinds of really cool notebooks, uh, planning cards, training session cards, t-shirts, ductigbrand.com d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com and when you go there use promo code d-w-show to get 10% off of your order at ductigbrand.com we'll be right back after this with an interview that we had in Copenhagen with James Myers Uh, we've had him on the show before it was a really good look and insight into coaching his background scouting uh, player development etc so uh, look forward to sharing that interview with you coming up right after this message from ductigbrand.com of like footballers have been through playing streetball it came up from Tennyson Park that's the park behind the library if you've been to South London and you've been to South Norwood, you know about that park because that's where everybody plays um, it has the cages it has the concrete that's where you fall you graze your knee your parents doesn't come and hug you uh, you play with the older kids they let you on your team or they don't in terms of player development, how important is it for players to play with older players? Well, playing with older players is you build a certain pressure on yourself because you don't want to mess up in front of them. And at the same time, you want to showcase all your talent so that they think you're cool and you're part of them. Also, you want to try and trick them out. You want to not make them and then have their friends clown them but then make you look cool at the same time. It's just just freedom and creativity comes from that. Building uh, resiliency, mental resiliency, playing uh, on the streets, playing with your mates, how does that help you build resiliency? Well, you get you get into different situations. All right, look, uh, you might go into call your friends to go and play, um, and then you're down one or two players, or they don't want certain group of you on their team because you're younger, or whatever. So you play a man down, you play two men down. Um, there are no parents to sort out the quarrels you have on the pitch. You guys have to problem solve there and then. So in that turn, you're actually mature you're building a mental toughness that you wouldn't otherwise if mommy and daddy were there to organize the team and tell the other kids off to not play you or put you on their team um, you have to stand up for yourself these bugs are just <laughs> 
Um, we talked the other day about um, the game is like 80% mental. So how do you, as a coach, how do you develop players to address that mental side of the game? That's a good question. Um, a lot of coaches uh, generalize within their team one way of coaching, all right? Um, you have to understand different makeups of players, different backgrounds, uh, different ways to approach them. There are some players that are really coddled by their parents. Sometimes they do need to have arm around their shoulder. They need to be mentored and told that, look, in life, um, your parents aren't gonna be there all the time, but then you coach them through that. You tell them yourself against players that are more hard-headed and more um, sure of themselves. And then the players who are sure of themselves that come from broken, a lot of them come from broken backgrounds. You, they also need uh, a figure there that is like an older brother to just be like, look, settle down, relax. Um, or sometimes, yeah. If you need help in this situation, come and talk to me. They might just need somebody to listen to. Um, and when they feel comfort and trust, I think that's when they start actually trying to prove themselves to you. How important is um, the physical part of the game for a player? And uh, I'm asking that question based on um, kind of a U.S. perspective versus more of a European perspective when it comes to addressing, you know, working out or physical aspects of, of development. How important for you as a coach is is the the physical side of the game developing development wise? That's a that's a loaded question because um, we're in Denmark right now, and I wanted to Paris me, and um, the head scout says, "Oh, we are." physical players now when they say that they don't mean it's just straight physical players zero technical ability zero soccer IQ they're saying that because where they are right now most of the culture most of the players are one way and um, that's very technical, um, technical as well but lack the uh, power and pace that other players have plus and the technical ability. Whereas um, I find that in the US, um, it's first physical, and then you're like, oh, we can coach the technical But then you have to think about the kids to the sport, uh, the families coming to the sport to actually develop that technical aspect, uh, spend the hours away from the pitch, just training, uh, playing. It's if they've been gaining success just just being physical through the younger age groups and now you're telling them yeah you're physical but you need to develop this and that what's easier to address tactical technical deficiencies or physical deficiencies and I don't mean physical from the standpoint of you know like um, special needs or anything like that I just mean like maybe it's um yeah, I think back to like uh, an Iniesta coming up from La Masia. He's just a scrawny little kid. Um, that picture uh, versus uh, you know the, the ta technical tactical side that you're just talking about. Which one's easier to? In, in my experience, in my opinion, it's easier. I'd rather have the technical, tactical player that is slow, not really athletic in my team because uh, you can maneuver and you can tactically outsmart a physical opponent. Uh, whereas when you just have physical players and you're playing against a technical team, or you're playing a team that is as physical as your players and your players are not technical at all, run into brick walls and then they resort to just trying to use brute strength and the game is not attractive at all. Problems in, in matches, um, how as a coach do you try to train problem solving in your training sessions to develop your players to be better problem solvers in a match? Um, I try not give them the solutions. 
questions of why they did something and listen to their answers because a lot of the times the players have the answers to a situation that they've seen that I haven't seen and and then we both sit down and look at it and be like right how did you come at this answer and what was it resulting after in your head what resulting after and then once they start getting those types of pictures in their heads you get a clearer version of vision of how to train them within those situations and different situations um as i as many people know rondos are huge for me because um you can use everywhere on the pitch uh players are not restricted to a position uh it's like filling the blanks uh, work out the solutions and overloading player places um, and having them figure it out for themselves when you are setting up a team to play what's your, what's your personal and, and how does that shape the kind of players that you try to identify and bring into your teams uh, my personal coaching philosophy is destroy the opponent um, in every sense of the word possession the way we attack the way we transition the way we press and uh, scoring goals uh, I like my team to be very fluid um, cliche everybody says that but I really do like my team to be very fluid um, I don't like to say I play a possession style I like to say I play a positional style meaning players understanding time and space and where to move to at the right time or where they think is the right time and then overload the opponents and capitalize on that with goals. Overloads. What type of overloads do you look to create and can you define an overload for the audience? To play, play it simple, overload is where I have more of my players than them but then we progress up the pitch with those players. If my right back receives the ball, I would like my defensive mid to come in support. Uh, defensively, I would like my defensive mid to come in support. Um, my goalkeeper to come in support. And a winger to come in support. When I want to move up the pitch, I want to have defensive mid, center mid, right wing to come in support that right back. And then progress through that third and then hopefully switch it to the other side. How important is verbal communication? on the field um, in terms of the ability of a team to successfully play your style. So that's so that's why I ask a lot of questions because while I'm asking the asking the question that they're answering, they're learning how to coach at the same time. So I I like it when they are giving out instructions themselves on the pitch more so than I do. When they come out and I give them little tidbits and I speak to them on the side individually. I'm not saying that I don't like not coaching at all, but I prefer them to be coaching the game and finding the solutions within themselves and talking to each other, instructing each other and respecting each other's decisions. When you are running a training session, a player um, struggling. It could be frustration, it could be mental, it could be um, just lack of understanding concept, whatever. What is your approach to address that? Is it is it to um, stop a session and pull them to the side? Is it to kind of talk to them in a break? How, how do you handle that kind of, you, you've got a group setting, but you may have a player or two that maybe is not figuring it out or, or, or having some personal issues, whatever. How do you handle those moments as a coach? Uh, I like to do that um, on a break or after the practice session independently. They don't want to feel embarrassed in front of other players. Uh, I'm a firm believer on confidence and mental health, so I don't want to um, them in front of everybody so that they become embarrassed and lose confidence. And I've lost the player completely. So usually I'll do it on a break, I'll ask them how they find the practice, what they're struggling with, if anything's going on at home, and then figure out solutions through that way. How important is confidence to a player's ability to play at the highest level? I, I, 
I think confidence is the highest because um, recently, actually, we had um, we had a, a coach speak to some players about a situation in the game, um, asking them, okay, if you're on a trial and um, it's just a scrimmage and the striker on the team dribbles the player and there is a situation where you're in the best position to score a goal and they're at a tight angle and they force it and they said oh we'll celebrate with them and the coach looked shocked and he was like no you get mad at the player yeah you might go and celebrate after but you're mad at you want to score you have to have a certain type of ego and confidence to try and make it to the top because it's a dog world out there if you have no confidence everybody will tread all over you and 80% of the game is confidence you can be the worst player in the world have a huge bag bag of confidence and leadership skills and you could actually make it so as a, as a player who wants to make a name for themselves maybe you're on trial maybe you're with a new team how can you catch a scout's eye how can you catch a potential you know club New, new coach's eye or whatever to make a good impression how do you make a good first impression as a player there's no i mean there's no easy formula for that or else a lot of players would be easily just typing it in and then getting the answers to um, but the main thing is uh, whenever you go into a trial you do not just pick out what you do what you know stick to what you know be confident in what you know and then let the rest happen um, because if you go to a trial and you overdo things and you do things that you don't know it's more risk of making mistakes and just overworking yourself for no reason just do what you know well and be confident if you were a player let's say you're a u.s player and your goal your dream is to play at the highest level to play in europe um what are some things that you can do even while you are stateside to prepare you for an opportunity down the road seek the best trainers um, seek the best um, development teams basically research the coaches that are actually preaching this and then go to their practices trying to see and just compare them to the other practices they go to um, figure out how to get abroad on regular training stints whether it be two weeks here and there a month here and there 90 days here and there um, work watch more soccer play in the streets play with kids play with college um, just try to be around the game every day. If you had one piece of advice for an aspiring pro, a young player, maybe they're a teenager, maybe they're 8, 9, 10 years old, what would your one piece of advice be to them uh, to, to, to reach their goals? First off, fall in love with the game. If you do not like the game, you're not going to make it. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday, September the 4th. Um, I'd like to thank James for spending some time with us uh, while we were in Copenhagen. He was uh, working with Joga at a tournament. Uh, that's where I met uh, Michael, uh, who we had on the show last week, uh, with an interview that we recorded after we got back from that trip. And um, so thankful for him. Sorry if it was a little noisy in the background. Uh, we were in the back corner um, there at the hotel, and it was it was a little loud that night when we when we set out to record. But um, thank thanks to him for spending some time with us, sharing his thoughts on on a wide variety of topics. Uh, speaking of spending time on on a wide variety of topics, Gab Marcotti, uh, who is a senior writer for ESPN FC. Uh, laid out a, a case for his ideas on growing the game for women's soccer and um, wanted to wanted to go through some of this and, and and kind of look at some of the things he asked some of the things that he he some of his ideas that he espoused or, or possible solutions some of them were interesting and I think they're they're worth taking a look at. And, um, you know, when you, when we, we look at what happened this summer in the uh, 2019 women's world cup in France, uh, it was a big success and, uh, there were a lot of eyeballs on the tournament, um, biggest tournament to date in that, in that regard, but there were some other issues, uh, that a lot of people didn't understand about the tournament and, and why it is not as big of a moneymaker as it could be and I think should be going forward uh, beginning in 2027 when the next contracts are uh, up for, for bid. Right now, everything goes through uh, the the Men's World Cup. That is the cash cow uh, of FIFA. Um, and, and so right now, the women's tournament is just bundled with that. And, and that's why there is some inability to leverage truly leverage uh the tournament from from a revenue standpoint right now doesn't mean that fifa shouldn't be doing more for the women's game that's not what i'm saying at all what i am saying is is they have an underutilized asset and i think they're starting to realize that and that's that is one of the positives that has come out of this world cup this summer uh, according to FIFA, Brazil set a new global viewing record when 35 million watched uh, their national team take on France in the round of 16. Um, that was a really big deal uh, for uh, for Brazil, for the women's game. Um, and, you know, the... One of the points that that Gab makes in the very beginning about the viewing audience from this summer is, you know, if you're a football junkie, if you're like my family, we're always trying to figure out what games are on, what matches are on, whether that's the African Cup of Nations, whether that's a U21 tournament, doesn't matter. We're always looking for matches. And there were options to look at this summer. Uh, there was the European, the Euros, the under-21s. The, there was the Africa Cup of Nations, Copa America, uh, as well as the Gold Cup, and um, all of that w- was taking place this summer, uh, and 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 so you know you have these um, tournaments, and yet all all of the eyeballs or the primary eyeballs were on the Women's World Cup, and you could see this playing out. the the the, the viewership was was extremely high. Uh, and the tournament was celebrated across mainstream media, not just here in the U.S., but all over the world. I mean, everyone was hailing this as a big deal. And and as a result, questions start get they start to get asked. Where's the money going? Where's the money coming from? Where is the disparity level? What's or are we looking at a situation of equality or inequality? All of these things start to get asked of FIFA. They get, they get asked of the stakeholders in the women's game, players, fans, national associations, 
and this happened all over the world. One of the risks of this summer is what happens between now and 2023. In between this peak level of interest, on the women's side, the, the interest in the game around the world is primarily on the national teams, international play. So, so that peaks every four years. There's a World Cup every four years. In between that time, there's a big valley. Now, on the men's side, you'll have some tournaments like Copa America for the national teams or the, the European Championships that, that will be taking place next summer in Europe for the men's national teams. But their primary you know, filling of a calendar and interest level, etc., takes place on a club level on the men's side. Your, your FC Barcelona versus a Liverpool. All of this kind of uh, attention all, all around the world. Club game, Boca, River, all of that domestic club matches. That level doesn't exist yet on the women's side. They're trying to build it. They're trying to grow it. So you have that at play as well. How do you continue to build off this momentum and, uh, and, and the success that was this Women's World Cup? And so how do you do that? There's some issues that we have to look at. And, and I think Gab did a really good job of asking some questions. And he had some interesting ideas uh, about these questions. Uh, the first one that he looked at was, was with FIFA. Should we be holding FIFA to account over equal pay and equal prize money? And his answer is that a lot of people conflate the two issues. They, they confuse equal pay with equal prize money. And, and the media has played right into that as well. But his point is they're entirely separate. So equal pay refers to what women's national teams earn relative to their male counterparts, meaning the U.S. men's national team is terrible, but they get paid more than the women's national team who is the best in the world. Okay. That's an equal pay issue. That is us soccer's problem. And they should get all kinds of pressure from Congress, all kinds of pressure from the public and from the media until they fix it. That is one issue. That's equal pay. And I actually take that to another level than, than what Gab said. And that is, equal treatment. It's not just about getting the same paycheck. It's also about the same level of treatment, the same experience. Meaning if you've got three trainers and a nutritionist and a massage therapist for your men's national team, then that should be provided for the women's national team. If the men's national team is flying chartered flights or first class, the women should get the same. If the men are staying in four or five star hotels, the women should get the same. That's what I mean by equal treatment. Not just the pay disparity, but the treatment disparity. If the men are training at professional football complexes, soccer complexes, or or at high level, you know, college soccer environments, then the women should not be training at a high school field or at a public city park. Equal treatment. So when he's talking about equal pay in his response and, and what he's looking at and in the way the media is, has confused these topics he's referring to how u.s soccer treats u.s women's national team versus u.s men's national team that's what he's looking at so um you know a lot of people have said well you know the men make more money they earn more money that's not actually true um when you have several countries like the women's national team who draw much larger audiences have much more success on the field than our men's national team. I can promise you this. There are a lot more 
people in this country that know the women's national team players than know men's national team players. Outside of Christian Pulisic, others probably don't even know five players. So when you when you when you're looking through these issues, you start to see, okay, I can follow that. I can follow this. You know what he's saying about equal pay. I call it equal treatment. Um, where it gets a little bit tricky with some of that is when you start getting into what countries do to subsidize their women's players because of the lack of the leagues, and um, and so. That's where you you look at some of those aspects too. Like, what are these national teams earning uh, for their play as a national team player versus a domestic player? So then you start to have to look at that, take that into account. What are the adjustments and 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 payments there? And you know, that's one of the issues that has to be addressed. I think by FIFA as well as by these national associations. Norway was was one of the first countries to come out and say we're going equal down, you know, across the board. Period. What he what he went on to say about prize money is, and if you look at the 2018 prize money from the the men's uh, World Cup in 2018, the prize money the total pool was 400 million. The women's prize money was only 30 million. Now. That's ridiculous. I mean, the disparity is just huge. But the prize money, for for, for Gab's point, isn't as big of an issue as the development money. Uh, the prize money goes to the to to reward those who do the best. And obviously, the U.S. Women's National Team, top of the heap. We'd, we'd stand to gain the, the largest amount of money. And we can all say that even though we, we don't feel like domestically they're treated like they should, they have a big advantage on the rest of the world between Title IX, between the investments that have been been, been made here uh, over the course of, of decades. We, we've had success and we've put more into our game than most countries in there, and we've seen the results of that. Gab's point was to grow the game around the world. FIFA should be looking at development money at the same time as prize money and making sure that countries around the world who, who don't even have a women's program have an incentive and some funding from FIFA, some help, some resources to be able to, um, uh, to do that. Um, roughly a quarter of FIFA's member nations don't even field senior women's teams. So, and in those countries, they don't even have uh, organized football at any level for female players. So when you're looking at some of these things, and I, I encourage you to check out the article, it's, it's, it's got a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts and, 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 and a really good look into some of the things uh, that, that are at play and at work on the women's side of the game that, um, you know, I think it's, it's worth taking a look at. Some of them you may like, some of them you may disagree with, but, you know, he looks into the nuance. He looks into some some possible solutions, some ideas. I love articles like this because you, you start to to really kind of think, okay, do I agree with that? Why do I agree agree with that? And it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show in, in terms of what is my worldview, my worldview on women's soccer, and, and, and how does that affect how I view our women's national team how do i how does that affect how i view the the women's game internationally uh on on domestic levels um the world cup the the unbundling of the the world cup on the men's and women's side so that we can better leverage the women's side for revenue um right now it doesn't bring in very much revenue at all because it's bundled with the men's as as kind of a freebie that was thrown in in the past in the future, as more and more eyeballs are on this and it continues to, to gain interest, 
can it get unbundled from the men's world cup and therefore be leveraged you know for for its own revenue and does that give fifa now the ability to go okay hey instead of the men's world cup funding 95 percent of our revenue the women's world cup is now funding 15 percent 20 percent of our revenue and now uh, things look differently. Now we have additional revenue on top of the men's revenue that we already have uh, that gives us even more ability to do more. So there's all of these factors at play that um, that we have to look at and, 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 and problem solve and create solutions for. And in creating those solutions, like I said earlier in the show, your worldview is going to shape that. Your worldview is going to to shape what you do with your women's national team. It's also going to shape um, how you handle, you know, your kids playing pickup soccer. It's going to affect everything at the biggest levels all the way down to the smallest levels. My eight-year-old has been begging me to, to, to try to find some time where he and some of his buddies can get up and play, pick up soccer. And, the, and part of the problem that we, that we deal with and most families deal with is schedules. And, and having other families' schedules work out to be able to, to, to make it. So I, I yesterday randomly sent out a message to a bunch of his uh, teammates parents and and just said hey we're gonna go and and play if anybody wants to come and just left it like that and uh we had a really good turnout um pretty much every kid from from his team were there last night to play pickup soccer and i get home and my wife asked me you know how it went i told her it went really well and and she said, well, did you do any training with them before they started to play? Or did you? I said, no. No, I, I wanted them to experience pickup soccer. So, like, they got their own goals out. They set their own teams up. They set the rules, and they played. And they played for, you know, for an hour and 15 minutes and, uh, and, and just, you know, handled their, their own business. They played. They dealt with it on their own. Because my worldview on those kinds of things is that free play open play the things that we enjoyed as kids just getting up and and going out and playing in the neighborhood with your friends those days for a lot of kids are over they don't get that and so i was like they need that they need that opportunity to figure it out for themselves if they have a disagreement they got to work it out they need to create some sense of autonomy and and enjoyment and when they got done, they 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 were they loved it. They were like, "This is better than practice. This was amazing." So when you when your worldview is, "Hey, let's create opportunities for kids to fall in love with the game. Let's create opportunities for kids to 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 be more passionate about the game, to experience the game, and experience it on their own terms," then you walk away. You leave them playing in the park and you go to another place and you just let them handle their own business. And I would say it was a big success. Now these kids and their parents are like, let's do this like twice a week. So when, when your worldview is let's create more opportunities for kids to enjoy the game and play, you find those opportunities. You find those moments where, where you can create those environments where they can enjoy that free play. They can, it, it had nothing to do with training. There was no, no rondos or warm-up exercises. There was no adult supervision, no coaching at all. It was, you guys go play. Have a good time. I'll see you when it's done. Just like your worldview if, if it's of inclusion and access and opportunity, then you're trying to find a way for every club in America to be a part of a connected system of leagues so that what you do on the field matters and it sets you up to go up or it sets you up to go down. But that's your worldview. If your worldview is power and exclusion and, and, and control, then your worldview is, I don't want you to say too much in my stadium because it might get out of hand. I don't want other teams to get access to what we have here because 
because this is how we and our business model is set up to create artificial scarcity so that we can basically leverage and extort cities and, and, and taxpayers to give us free money to pay hundreds of million do- uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to get access to our league that you could have earned on the field anywhere else in the world but here we're going to charge you 200 million and the federation signs off on this because their worldview is MLS must succeed no matter what so whether it's at a granular local level of you know, eight-year-olds getting out and enjoying some some pickup soccer, or or you're looking at how to handle a women's national team, or how fans should be treated in stadiums across this country. We all need to take a look at our worldview and figure out what do we truly believe, what are our principles, and let that guide our decisions. And in there, in that place, in that that examination that self-examination i think we can get a lot closer to to finding the answers that we seek the solutions we're after to grow this game to a level that it's never been experienced in this country so thanks for tuning in today um as always you can watch the show at facebook.com forward slash wrkmn or at danielworkman.com thanks for tuning in we'll see everyone again tomorrow at 8 a.m eastern standard time and if you're getting up in the morning and and you're watching from the west coast kudos to you you can listen to this show on apple podcast and soon other platforms as well thanks for tuning in we'll see everyone again tomorrow